Before we jump into today's episode, I mentioned last week, if, if you didn't hear, that there was some big news to share this week. And that news potentially is bad if you really like specialty stories. We're going to shut it down, at least for now. We have had 229 amazing guests on this podcast over the course of several years, looking at as many specialties as we could get our hands on, at least specialists that would volunteer to come on and talk to us. And with the growth of MedEd Media and now Mapped and everything that we are doing, I need to pull my focus away from this one a little bit and potentially leave it out there to come back to. So I hope you have enjoyed Specialty Stories, but this is going to be the last episode, at least for a little while. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, which was a great conversation. Specialty Story, session number 229. You're a non-traditional student entering the medical field on your terms. You may have had some hiccups along the way, but now you're ready to change course and go back and serve others as a physician. This podcast is here to help answer your questions and help educate you on your non-traditional journey to becoming a physician. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to bring you a final episode today. Hopefully, maybe not final, final, but uh, for now, at least, with Dr. Seth Perlman, a pediatric neurologist specializing in neuromuscular disorders. We have a great conversation about how he came to this specialty, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and so much more. We start the conversation by talking with Dr. Perlman about how he found this specialty. So I started medical school, I think, thinking about psychiatry, actually. Um, I was a psychology major in undergrad, and I liked like the neuroscience aspect of things. Mm. Um, and so I thought, I was thinking that mental health would kind of be where my focus was going to be. And within the first couple, like those, the preclinical years in medical school, um, I pretty quickly realized I was a lot more drawn to the content of our like neuroscience course and neurology as opposed to psychiatry. Um, I mean, they're, they're closely related and sort of this artificial construct to say what's psychiatry and what's neurology. Yeah. Um, but I, I landed on the neurology side. Yeah. Um, and so probably within the first, really the first year or so of medical school is when I landed on neurology. Um, and I knew, I didn't really realize that pediatric neurology was a thing um, early on. Like I, I went to medical school in Chicago. Um, we had two pediatric neurologists on our faculty at that time there. And it wasn't really something you got a lot of exposure to preclinically. And unless you were going to seek it out, it wasn't something you got a lot of exposure to in medical school period. Um, but I, I, there's a strong family history for me of people working with children. Um, I had taught uh, English in like grade school levels um, in Japan for a year before I started medical school. So I knew that I liked working with kids. And then I kind of figured out in the like third to fourth year of medical school that pediatric neurology was a a different pathway that you could pursue. Yeah. Um, and that, it just really clicked with me when I started spending time with um, our pediatric neurologist who was sort of the main clinician as part of the faculty in my med school. 
um, it just, it was like, Oh yeah, this, this is me. Like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. So that was, that was sort of how that interest developed. Yeah. And, and then how did you land, uh, at a neuromuscular kind of subspecialty within that? So that, that was during residency. Um, I, the first, the, the pathway for pediatric neurology was you did two years of general pediatrics. And then it was three years of neurology, the first of which in our, the way our program was structured um, was just mostly adult neurology. And so it was probably not really until my fourth or fifth, early fifth year of residency that um, I got some advice from one of the faculty who actually was a neuromuscular person that it's a good idea in neurology that if you have a procedure that you can do both from a, a billing standpoint and making yourself sort of attractive to, you know, clinical settings and departments and things. It's, it's changed since then. It's not nearly as much the, the lucrative thing that it used to be to do procedures, but um, that was one aspect of it, but also just in terms of variety of your clinical workload, um, you're not, wouldn't necessarily just be seeing patients day in, day out. Um, if you're primarily clinical, fo clinically focused, um, but to do procedures, it, it gives you more variety in what your, your life looks like. So in neurology, there's, there's primarily three procedures that people do frequently. It'd either be EEGs, EMGs, or sleep studies. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of elective time in my last year of, of residency, and I tried to get some exposure to all three of those. And I, I pretty quickly gravitated towards EMG and, and by default then more neuromuscular neurology mm -hmm. um, as a thing that I, I found I really enjoyed doing. Um, I liked sort of the like active way you have to think about it and, and do the study at the bedside and maybe change it as you go, depending on what you find. Mm -hmm. And I just, I found myself really gravitating towards neuromuscular disorders as something that I, I felt like I, for reasons that are hard to put my finger on, I connected with, with the patients that we took care of and seeing what was sort of coming down the pipeline of therapy development was really exciting. And that, that's totally borne out to be the case. There's incredible therapies that have come out since I finished training. Yeah. Um, so that, that's been a, a part of that decision as well. Yeah. Let's let's talk before we go any further. Let's talk about the patients, right? We we talk about neuromuscular pediatric neurologists. Mm -hmm. Who are you seeing? Why are they seeing you? So, um, the probably the two most common conditions that we'll see are uh, muscular dystrophy, mm -hmm. uh, of which Duchenne and Becker muscular dystrophy is is far and away the most common. Um, and then spinal muscular atrophy. Um, but, it, you know, those are the two most common individual diagnoses. In general, neuromuscular really encompasses anything that's kind of peripheral to the brain and spinal cord. Mm. So, so anyone with uh, neuropathies, with, um, with neuromuscular junction disorders like myasthenia gravis, people with primary muscle diseases, so really anything that localizes to that more peripheral segment of the nervous system and the muscles themselves would fall into that category. Um, but with 
with those two diagnoses really kind of leading the pack as far as what are the most common things that we'll see. Yeah. So let's let's uh, go even a little bit further because someone listening to this, a pre-med or a medical student, may may not be at a, a point where they're like, oh yeah, muscular dystrophy, no problem, I know what that is. Uh, <laughs> an adult neurologist, you go, oh, they had a stroke. Okay, yeah, like I, I, I know what happened, right? Or may not know what caused the stroke, but I, I understand the underlying thing. What's going on uh, with muscular dystrophy, with spinal muscular atrophy, um, that that is causing issues and and what does that look like for the patients yeah um so i mean ultimately they're both genetic disorders um and i think that's that's probably one of the distinctions to draw between my field of pediatric neuromuscular and adult neuromuscular adult neuromuscular like they still deal with lots of genetic disorders um but i think there's a lot more acquired like autoimmune or other sorts of neuromuscular conditions. Whereas on the, the pediatric side, we're definitely very much dominated by um, genetically based disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in general, what, what all of these things have in common is there's some kind of a, a genetic variation that impedes or impacts muscle function and, and nerve and or nerve function. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's like a muscular dystrophy, um, like the most common form Duchenne muscular dystrophy is, is a change in the gene that encodes this protein dystrophin, which is really critical for maintaining muscle cell integrity and, and health. And so what you get over time is degeneration of muscle function, um, for spinal muscular atrophy, which is also a, a relatively common diagnosis that we see in our clinics. Again, there's a genetic variation that, that somehow impacts the neuromuscular system. In this case, it actually causes degeneration of the anterior horn cells. But there's a lot of parallels, too, where even though then it's more of a, a primary nerve problem, you get progressive weakness and loss of motor functioning as part of that. And so there's a lot of overlap among all of these conditions as far as the impact that they have on, on patients' lives. Mm. So you get, with all of these disorders that are progressive, um, you, know, you get weakness that starts at some point in someone's life. And if it's a progressive condition, it's going to worsen and worsen over time. And at first, it often affects you know, motor functions like walking and getting up off the ground, feeding yourself, chewing and swallowing. Um, it also, most of these disorders will affect breathing muscle function. And some of them will also affect cardiac muscle, just because there's a lot of similarities between cardiac and skeletal muscle. And so these are the probably the most common body systems um, mm. that that we see impacted by this broad category of disease. Um, okay, I'm not sure that that yeah. answers the question that you're asking. Yeah, no, it definitely does. What what traits do you think lead to someone being a good neuromuscular pediatric neurologist? Will um, I mean, I think in general on the pediatric side, you have to be really comfortable with interacting with children and and interacting with really a family as a whole. Um, it, we often talk about not just in pediatric neurology, but in pediatrics in general, you really aren't taking care of a patient. You know, you're you're taking care of a child, but their parents, siblings potentially, like 
really there's a whole family unit that you're going to be interacting with and getting close to longitudinally over time. And I think having having some degree of comfort um, in in really that kind of therapeutic relationship is really important. Um, and then just comfort in interacting with with children and building a therapeutic relationship with children. Yeah. Um, you know, we we have a lot of adult neurologists that as part of their training, they have to spend a certain amount of time in pediatric neurology clinics. And it's funny because it's like, I, I think of interacting with kids as like this kind of fun, easy thing for a lot of adult specialists. It is not. <laughs> and, and not everyone is like, is comfortable with kids or, yeah. or, or with the idea of kids having diseases. Yeah. Um, that's, that can be really tough on, on, you know, students or trainees or, or people that are going into medicine, it's a different kind of tragedy um, in children who have medical problems than the tragedy of maybe an adult who's lived, you know, a pretty full life before they develop medical problems. Um, whereas with children, you know, it may even be, you know, early enough in their life that they would never have known a life without this or that medical condition. So it that's hard on people too, where I don't think that's for everyone either. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's interesting. I've, I've had enough of these conversations now where, um, and I think maybe that's the first time it was verbalized. The, the, the part of a physician being uncomfortable, potentially taking care of kids because it's just, it's not fun, right? To, to think like kids are supposed to be our future and they're supposed to be healthy, right? We have all these, cons uh, kind of, thoughts about what kids are supposed to be. And then you walk into a, a children's hospital and you're like, oh, wait, <laughs> the kids are sick. And, and it's just depending on, on the person, depending on the physician, uh, it, it impacts them in different ways. And I've had kind of the opposite conversation with pediatric providers and uh, physicians and, and lots of different subspecialties that they wanted to treat kids because the adult version of whatever they're treating the adult did that to themselves, right? And in, in, in air quotes, right? Obviously, uh, addiction and, and lots of stuff is multifaceted reasons. But there's there's that thought process too of like, well, I'm either taking care of a patient who they, they couldn't help it, right? Because they're a kid or someone who smoked for 20 years and now they have lung cancer. Um, so it's just interesting. Yeah, that's, and that's a good point. Like there's, there's sort of like two sides to that. Like there's why did you go into what you went into? And then there's why didn't you pursue an alternative? Yeah. And, and for me that, that rings kind of true. And like, and, and I don't know if that's something that I would have said earlier in like medical education in my training course, or if that's something that that I started to feel later, but like kind of a feeling of like, it, you really, you really need to be non-judgmental, right. Yeah. And you need to be able to separate, um, like thoughts and feelings about, you know, someone earning a medical problem or, or what their contribution was. And just, you just take care of them and yeah. you give them support. And what I found that maybe over time was, I had a harder time with that with adults where they had more agency and, and decisions that they'd made in the past had a bigger contribution to 
where they wound up with medical problems down the road, as opposed to kids who, even if it's injury or it's some sort of acquired problem, yeah. it's not really ever their fault per se, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. Obviously with genetics in general, it's nobody's fault. Like nobody, <laughs> it's the parents' can fault. control <laughs> the outcome. Well, but it's not even fault, you know, yeah. like, especially with a lot of these things like parents may have no idea that they carry yep. the potential for a disorder in their child. And how could anyone, even if you know it, like you can't control the outcome shy of doing IVF and yeah. pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and yeah. stuff, which is not within everyone's grasp. Yeah. So got it. You know, but it, 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 there's, there's an innocence to pediatric patients where mm. I feel like I can, I can, you know, give it 110% in a way that it might be harder for me to do if in the back of my head, I'm like thinking about a, a person's prior life choices and how they might contribute to where this person winds up with problems. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's just the human part of being a doctor and taking care of people. Yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. Yeah. And it's, and I, I think it's, you know, we all obviously have different outlooks on it. Like for me, the the tragedy part of seeing kids with medical problems, I, I don't know that that wasn't something that dissuaded me. And if anything, I also find that motivating to yeah. try to like, like, yeah, like this is nobody wants their child to have this problem. Nobody in society wants to see children get sick. I mean, we have a much easier time getting certain things covered for children than we do for adults in terms of like things like genetic testing. Mm. Um, and I think some of that is that there's a lot more willingness in society to support, uh, support kids when you see them with issues than yeah. adults in some cases, or like social work, like there's a lot more social work resources to bring to bear for children yeah. than there is for adults in a lot of cases. What does a typical day look like for you or a typical week? Maybe if there's no typical day. Yeah. So it, it, I'm, I'm a, a pediatric neuromuscular person in, you know, a primarily kind of academic setting. Mm -hmm. So there, there's kind of a bunch of hats that I wear and, and which hat is on my head varies through the course of a week. So um, probably about um, six or seven half days a week. I'm, in clinic, either seeing patients um, in my own clinic, or we have a large neuro, like a, a multidisciplinary clinics where there's a bunch of us that all are collaborating on seeing the same small group of patients. Um, or I'm doing EMG nerve conduction studies in like a, our diagnostic laboratories. Um, and then a lot of the other time is more either um, research-based. We run a lot of clinical trials here, most of which I'm the primary investigator for looking at, at novel therapies or other ways of, of trying to improve life for people with neuromuscular disorders. Um, and then uh, also on the educational side of things, I'm our uh, neuromuscular fellowship program director. So some of my time each week is, is devoted to doing that work as well. So there's, there's kind of a lot of different things, which I like that variety. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to, hard to wear that many hats. Yeah. Like keep that many plates spinning. Like there's probably a lot of things that um, I need reminders about to get done. Yeah. So 
When just for clarification for someone listening, you said six or seven half days a week. That that, that does not mean you're working six or seven days a week, but one full day no. is two half days. So just Correct. just to clarify yeah. that for people, uh, that's typically it's, how we talk about days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I mean typically five days a week. Mm-hmm. Although there's there's always work that spills over into nights and weekends. That, that, <laughs> Thanks. That's Epic. a never ending <laughs> truth of life, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and unless I'm on service, like I do probably maybe six weeks of inpatient service a year. Okay. Um, and so during those weeks, then I don't really have clinic and, and minimize how much other stuff I'm, I'm doing. And then it's really just primarily like leading our inpatient team to take care of the hospitalized pediatric neurology patients. Yeah. And then I'd work the weekend too. Yeah. And so you mentioned academics, and and one of the big goals of this podcast is to talk about the 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 choice between academic versus community. I, I'm almost wondering, listening to you talk about this subspecialty or this specialty, it, it it almost sounds like there's probably not a ton of community neuromuscular pediatrician like neurologists out there uh, doing this. It it almost seems like it's almost solely academic. Would, would that be a, a correct statement? I think that's pretty close. I mean, I know of some people that do, that have trained in neuromuscular um, and may have not gone on to like be in like large academic centers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think for the most part, because it's such a like narrow niche area in what's already kind of a narrow area, which is pediatric neurology. Yeah. Um, I think it, for in a lot of cases, like if you were going to want to be in more of just a primarily like clinically practice kind of environment, um, it's, it's very likely that you would have difficulty filling your practice with just neuromuscular. Um, and it'd probably be like, you know, you wanted to have more training in it. So maybe you did a fellowship, but ultimately that would be just a part of your your practice life. Yeah. Um, makes sense. And so you do a mix of pediatric neurology and then some neuromuscular. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, for the osteopathic student listening to this, any, any thing they have to do to overcome any negative bias and the, the neuromuscular world for them? Um, not that, not that I know of or have encountered. Um, I mean, I've seen lots of, of DO program graduates who, um, went through neurology residencies or, or, or like we've, we've had DO graduates come through our neuromuscle fellowship here. Mm. Um, actually my main, like the way that our program here in our hospital is structured, it's sort of a shared effort between neurology and uh, the rehab department, Mm. um, to handle all of like the big multidisciplinary clinics and the, the rehab physician who's in charge of that, that, part of our equation she's a do yeah and she's great um and we've had trainees come through like i said that were that had do's and and they did really well too so i think in in terms of this specific field i I can't say that i've you know really seen seen people have any bias against them doesn't mean it doesn't happen but yeah it's not something that I'm aware of. Yeah. What does the, the training path look like? So four years of medical school typically, and then what is, what does it look like to, to become you? Um, most commonly, I, I think it used to be that, that some people did pediatric neurology as more like a conventional fellowship after 
general pediatric training. So they might do a three-year residency in peds and then do three years of the neurology part. Mm. I think that that over the years has become less and less common. And I would say the standard at this point is typically a five-year residency with two years of general pediatrics and three years of neurology, about one year of which is adult neurology. But how that's sort of structured within the program, I think, varies from residency to residency. Yeah. And Um, and that's a pediatric neurology residency. That's what students are matching into. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then for neuromuscular, um, that's a fellowship uh, after a completion of that. It's usually a one-year clinical fellowship. Okay. Um, There are some places that, that do have pediatric neuromuscular fellowships. I think a lot of the fellowships, though, it's like, like, and including where I trained, which I thought I got a great education um, uh, where I did my residency and fellowship, but it was, it was a mix. It was probably actually more adult neuro, neuromuscular than it was pediatric. Yeah. But I think it's, it's such a niche area. There's, it's harder to find fellowships that are focused just on that. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, my, my wife, who's a neurologist, often talks about uh, time is brain in the neurology world, the adult neuro world. Um, it, it sounds like potentially for, for your world, time is muscle or time is those anterior uh, horns. Uh, for the future pediatrician listening to this who are going to be interfacing with your patients before you do, what do you want them to know about the patients that you see day in and day out to hopefully get them the care they need sooner? Um, I think there's, yeah, so that's a, that's a hard question. Um, I mean, I think the biggest is, is to be on the lookout or, or to be receptive to subtle signs of weakness. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's where some kids wind up getting, a delay in their diagnosis. And in some cases, like you mentioned with anterior horn cells, like a disease that may be a rapidly progressive disorder like SMA, um, you know, the sooner that that things are identified, the better. Mm. Um, and, and I think what's, what's hard is thinking about general pediatric practice. I mean, for me, I did two years of general pediatrics, like we were in clinics and, and primary care settings, you know, You've got a kid on the exam table and that's where you examine them. And I think what's tricky is a lot of the more subtle things that are clearly abnormal uh, that, that one, you know, would take as like a prompt to get someone to see a neurologist are uh, required getting the kid off the table. Um, And so making them walk, making them try to run down the hallway, have them lay on the floor and try to get off the floor. Mm. Um, I think those are, those are things that can really bring out, what the things are that parents may be noticing or, or other people noticing that, that sometimes isn't necessarily a standard part of an evaluation in a primary care clinic. Um, so that'd be one thing. The other thing, which is like, I think probably a common experience for everyone that does pediatric neuromuscular is, um, is, and maybe it's a bit of a pet peeve, but that AST and ALT are not specific for liver. So like all of us that see muscular dystrophy, like these kids have creatine kinase levels that are like 10,000, 20,000, and they will always have high AST and ALT. And there's some percentage of kids that get diagnosed, not because of any muscle issues or weakness concerns, but because 
they got a big liver workup and then finally someone checked a CK. Mm. And I, I just saw a kid recently in clinic who they got to the point of having a liver biopsy before someone checked a CK, found it was really high and then referred them on to neurology. So I think realizing that even though those are included on like hepatic function panels and stuff, they aren't specific for liver. And so maintaining, um, maintaining a low threshold to send a really cheap lab test like a CK before going down this big hepatic pathway is probably wise. <laughs> nice. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into your specialty? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I don't, I don't think there's anything... Uh, nothing that comes to mind that's like a negative um, as far as like, oh, I wish I'd known this and I would have done things differently or I might have made different decisions. Um, honestly, the biggest things that I feel like are, are things that I have learned since going into this are just like what's incredible in science and and what real like i mean just incredible potential there is for improvement of care mm. um you know i think historically in, in neurology in general like there's sort of this old like diagnose and adios <laughs> that used to be the joke about what yeah. neurologists do yeah and 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 i think historically that that's not inaccurate just because especially when it comes to genetic disorders like we didn't have a whole lot of tools to treat much of anything yeah um like sma is probably the best example i can come up with with you know when i finished my fellowship there were no fda approved medications and the things that were being developed were were still very much in the lab space or in the clinical trial space and then the first therapy for sma came out in 2016 and since two more drugs have come out there's a whole bunch more things being studied that are in sort of a drug development pipeline and this is for a, a genetic diagnosis that a few decades ago, you know, was diagnosed based on maybe a muscle biopsy and an EMG. And now we can do a gene test. There are genetically targeted drugs to change yeah. the outcome of it. Like all of this is just incredible. And yeah. it's all come out, you know, since I finished my training. And because and there so is therapy now, uh, at least from yeah. a, the HSS standpoint, from a government level standpoint, it's approved for newborn screening. Uh, SMA yeah. is, uh, the states have to approve it and pay for it, but I, I haven't looked at the newest. I don't know if you know off the top of your head how many states are actual, actu actually actually doing it as newborn screening. I just gave a, actually uh, a lecture on SMA to our fellows last week. Yeah. <laughs> and when I looked at the, the current, I think there were seven states that were still not not implementing SMA as part of their state newborn screen. <laughs> I could probably assume where in the country they probably are. <laughs> You'd be surprised, really? actually. Really? So, yeah, like it's, you know, um, the ones that come to mind first off, just because like they're, they're states that neighbor us here in Washington, but mm. Alaska, Hawaii, and Oregon wow. all still don't have it as part of their standard screen yet, which I was, I was surprised by. Yeah, um, that's interesting. But it, it seems like it's very it's very scattered as yeah. far as the the states that still haven't yet implemented, and they may be in the process of it. I mean, yeah. different states have adopted it with different different rates of rapidity, and yeah, 
in some cases, like Missouri was actually the first state in the country to include it. And that was because it went through a legislative pathway instead of like committees having to meet and stuff like that. So nice. Um, they actually were pretty fast, but that's, that's a piece of it too. I mean, there's been a push for years to get Duchenne included on newborn screening. Um, I think the hard part there is, you know, the, we don't have quite the same therapies to bring to bear for Duchenne that like we have with SMA, yeah. um, where you can really just be like, like, you no, know, like you just hit the brakes completely on disease progression. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's not the same, the same kind of almost miracle like we have with SMA. Yeah. What do you like the most about your job? Kids. <laughs> Honestly, like yeah, inter- interacting with kids in clinic and and their families and and especially like, um, especially just seeing the positive impact that that medical care can have for them um, is it it like there's so many things that can frustrate you right like administrative responsibilities and, and tedious paperwork and check boxes and epic and all of this stuff. And if there's anything that's sort of regenerative and and restores like excitement and enthusiasm, it's it's interacting with patients and families. Um, I, I'm like behind me is my bulletin board in my office where like I've got a bunch of like drawings that kids gave me in clinic or things that that like they sent like Christmas cards or things, and it's just that's the fuel that that keeps you going. You know. Yeah. What do you like the least? A lot of that other stuff I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Epic. Administrative, <laughs> like tedium and yeah. Um, you know, like just just all the stuff that goes into like stuff you've gotta do. Yeah. From a professional standpoint or a credentialing standpoint or a just meeting responsibilities beyond the responsibilities that you have to, to your your patients and their families or kind of the scientific community. Yeah. That stuff. That, that workload obviously has increased over time with EMR as great as it is to not have like illegible handwritten notes <laughs> that you have to like request up from some storage storage place. Like yeah. it, it definitely takes a lot more time and difficulty. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a pediatric neuromuscular specialist? Yes. Yeah. Most definitely. I, I really, I really love, I mean, the, the parts of my job that I do and that I like, or that I love, like those, those make all the rest of it worthwhile. And, and I, I feel like I kind of lucked out in, in that, like, I didn't necessarily set out with this is the end point that I wanted to land on. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, the main thrust of what I do, I really love what I do. For the student listening to this, potentially thinking about pediatric neuromuscular as their future career, what final words of wisdom do you have for them or maybe anyone else? Um, I, I think it's that, I think it's that you, you always need to have an eye on what can be improved yet. Um, you know, it, in my field, I finished fellowship in 2013. Just in the years since then, a lot has, has come out that's new and that has furthered things. Um, so I think I think I think being aware and, and maintaining like attention on on what's coming is, is really important. All right, so there you have it. 
episode 229 in the books for Specialty Stories. Maybe the last one, maybe more to come in the future. We shall see. If you want, let's let's do a little poll here. If you've made it to the end, if you want Specialty Stories to continue in some way in the future as soon as we can, go on to Twitter or Instagram and let us know. Send us send us a message. Hashtag save specialty stories. Let's let's try that. Let's see what happens. I hope you have a great week. Thank you again, Dr. Perlman, and every other physician who has volunteered their time to come on to this podcast and share their journey, share their specialty with me and with everyone else. This is Dr. Gray signing off on specialty stories, at least for now. This is MedEd Media.